In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, and blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Good morning, everyone. We have set before us the model and life of St. Joseph, who is patron of the Universal Church because he was given the care and the custody of God's greatest treasures, his beloved son and our blessed mother. He is a man that we know many things about by virtue of what it is that he did, although he said little to nothing at all. There is even a kind of a theology or a cult, if you will, that centers around the silence of St. Joseph, a man of no words, but a man of profound deeds. And so we are asked, especially as men, to strive to emulate him, the dignity in his person and the dignity of his purpose, to care for those who have been entrusted to us as spouses or children, family or friends, Regardless of our state in life, we have people in our lives who rely upon us, who need us. Even if they themselves aren't truly aware of that need that they have, the need is there nonetheless. And of course, we all are required to be instruments of grace for each other, those particularly entrusted to our care, but all those that we actually meet not fully ever knowing what God's divine providence is, therefore what role we might play in the salvation and the transformation of others. In a sense, we must always be on. We almost always be ready and prepared to be instruments of grace for others. A lot of things, in a sense, that need to be done. And yet I would do you a disservice if I only spoke about the things to be done without actually the foundation that precedes the doing. One of the constant exhortations that my spiritual director would give me in the seminary, five years, and then I was also with him the first two years of my priesthood, was that I needed to be a man of prayer. Now, in one sense, that, that makes perfect sense. How do you argue with that? How do you disagree with that? And of course, I was striving to be a man of prayer, but he went even further saying that whatever great apostolic work you might accomplish whatever great ministerial things you might do, if you aren't praying, they will still be effective. But you're going to be absent something that you need in order to be a part of the graces that you're bringing to others. Seemed strange to me at first, slightly counterintuitive. After all, if I'm doing the things of God, shouldn't that kind of, in a sense, redound back to me? If I'm giving grace to others, shouldn't I benefit in some way from the grace that's being given to them? And the answer is no, in truth. The priest particularly, but it could be argued that all believers in a sense, but the priest especially, he doesn't exist for himself. Something that I would later on pass to my seminarians, that you're not necessarily going to get to heaven just because you're a priest. If Dante makes it clear, the skulls of a great many priests, bishops, cardinals, are on the lower rungs of hell. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but certainly one could argue the case. Meaning this, 
It's not just enough to give something that God gives you to pass on. You have to cooperate with it. You have to be a part of it as well. In a sense, I can always, as priest, objectively offer grace to people. But I'm going to be more effective if I'm also taking advantage of the grace that God is bestowing upon me. And the effectiveness on that level is subjective. People will be attracted, if you will, to me. Not because of me personally, because they'll see hopefully in me that I'm striving to be a man of prayer, a man of holiness, a man of virtue. At the exact same time, I'm exhorting them to do the same. I had to pray. I had to develop a strong interior life. Because if I was going to do all these things externally... They had to be connected to who I am internally. Of course, this is St. Paul over and over and over again. You can do all these things, and that's what the old law was. The old law was a series of things to be accomplished that at times could be easily accomplished, but then also separate from an interior transformation. I know we're still in the Christmas season and the season of Epiphany, but Ash Wednesday will soon be upon us, and as we do each year, we'll read from the prophet Joel, Rend your hearts and not your garments, is the exhortation that the prophet gives. The Lord says over and over again, what I want is a humble, contrite heart, not just sacrifices that are empty and hollow, because I can do all of these things, but still not necessarily connect myself to them, connect my soul to them. And so we know, by what he does, that the success of St. Joseph comes from a deep and abiding interior life. Again, we have that one phrase, almost a, a phrase so oblique one could move over it too quickly in the Gospels where it says he was a righteous man. Not just that he did righteous things, but that he himself interiorly was a good man. He didn't want to expose Mary to shame. So he was seeking to do the right thing in the best of ways. All of that comes from a heart that is contrite, a heart that is humble, a heart that is attuned to God. So we have to train our souls, train ourselves as we do, so that as we do, it reflects who we actually are. It's a difficult conundrum for the modern age. We're either a bundle of emotions and interiority, or we're merely the uh, kind of uh, at the whim of all the external realities that surround us. I'm a victim of the environment, or I'm completely sui generis, and I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, with whomever I want, and no one can tell me no. My emotions, my feelings, my perspective dominates everything. Or the world outside is merely something to which I respond, over which I have no control. Well, maybe it's a little bit of both, actually. Yes, there are forces that work on me, but. I I'm an intelligent person. I have free will. I can respond. And I also have an interior life that can direct who I am so that the things that I do also reflect who I am. This has the converse when we talk about sin as well. Sin doesn't say everything about us, but it does say something about us. The church asks, for example, that we confess the frequency, not because she's concerned solely about the number, but the frequency reveals something. That's what she's trying to get at. That's what she wants us to look at. One or two sins here or there may or may not say something, but doing the same thing over and over and over again, even as I confess it over and over and over again, may be saying something about me. Something good, something bad, I don't know. But again, looking at what I do, why I do it, how often I do it, may give me an insight as to who I am, what I'm struggling with. 
And so if we want to emulate St. Paul, or St. Joseph rather, excuse me, if we want to, as St. Paul enjoins, to put on the new man, to put on Christ, yes, it is going to lead to action. You have to do something, faith and works, as St. James himself makes clear. But the action, the putting on of the new man, isn't just simply taking on a coat and wrapping myself in it. It is external, but it's also internal as well. There has to be a, a firm foundation to the humble soul, something that will help us maintain that firm foundation, especially when the things that we do may not always bear the fruit that we want them to bear. And of course, the world in which we live doesn't want us to do anything. So we are always open and susceptible to rejection, to mockery, to suffering and sacrifice. And if we are honest with ourselves, no one wants to carry their crosses. And yet that's precisely what we know we have to do, what will happen to us if we live our Catholic lives outdoors, if you will. To paraphrase the great poet Jared Menley Hopkins, to do it deliberately and intentionally. In order for that to happen, I have to have a firmness, not of my own making, not of my own crafting, but a firm foundation in the Lord. There are a great many ways to grow in holiness and grow in virtue, and God bestows upon them or bestows them upon us as that treasure trove to which we return again and again. The corporal and spiritual works of mercy, acts of charity, of course, prayer itself, and of course, the greatest school of virtue, the greatest school of holiness, is our presence at the holy sacrifice of the Mass. It is, after all, as the church teaches us, the source and the summit of our very existence. Everything about who we are and what we do begins and ends and comes to fruition and completion in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. While it is the third sacrament received, if you will, in chronological order, it precedes all of the other sacraments because it is a direct encounter with Christ. St. Thomas reminds us, among many reasons, why the Lord remains present to us under the appearance of bread and wine, so that the effectiveness of the cross doesn't remain ossified in history. The redemptive work that has happened by our Lord's sacrifice is still available to us, and that redemptive work changes us. It transforms us. It makes us whole. It unites us. It reconciles. It expiates. And God found the perfect way to make sure that which he accomplished 2,000 years ago would still be available to us here and now. So if I've often wondered, would I have been able to stand at the foot of the cross? Would I have been able to be there and to peer upon our sacrificed Lord? Would I have run away like the other disciples or would I have remained steadfast like the beloved disciple? But I've joined in in mocking the Lord with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Would I have shed tears with those who stood on the fringes? Would I have been forced and pressed into service as Simeon was? Would I have been like one of the centurions whose life was transformed as he testified to the holiness of the Lord? We are provided with a variety of different responses. But that's not just a rhetorical question about who I would have been in history. It's also a question as to who I am now. Because we will gather this morning around this altar of sacrifice 
And that cross, that mountaintop upon which our Lord ascended in order to offer himself to us, becomes available to us. So it's no longer a rhetorical question, who would I have been? The question is, who am I now? Who am I when I come to the holy sacrifice of the Mass? Have I come prepared and open to receive the living God? Have I come with a humble and contrite heart? Have I come having made of myself a, a worthy tabernacle to receive this greatest of gifts? These are not rhetorical questions. We have to ask and answer them every time we approach our Lord in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. As we come to Mass, as we are in Mass, as we depart Mass, and then as we live our lives from Sunday to Sunday, and if we're privileged to do so, day to day, if we're daily communicants. And so our presence at holy sacrifice of the Mass and the church's commandment to fulfill the obligation and duties of Sunday, the precept to be present at Holy Mass, whether we're able to receive or not, to be present there is the place where we go to, to learn holiness, to learn virtue, to be transformed by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and to accept and to realize that all of these things truly happen to us. By training, I'm a sacramental theologian. I spent the lion's share of my life teaching sacramental theology, different schools as there are in a variety of different disciplines. And the approach that I was taught in and the approach that I take is called sacramental realism. The sacraments do what they say they're supposed to do. They do something to you. And it's amazing to me how many people, Catholics, don't actually either understand that, believe that, and accept that. The sacraments are things that happen. They may make me feel good, but it isn't about how I feel. I used to go to confession. I still do weekly. Well, when I first started getting into that process many, many years ago, I would always feel better after I would go to confession. Oftentimes we do feel better. But then going once a week over the course of 20 plus years or so, it begins to become kind of ordinary. And since my sins aren't that interesting or creative, I'm basically confessing the same things over again week after week to the same confessor year after year. The novelty of it kind of wears off. The feeling good kind of wears off. And so in the back of my mind, I begin to wonder, does any of this make any difference? Is anything really happening to me? Because, come on, I mean, I'm going week after week. Shouldn't my sins at least be different? Shouldn't I come up with new things to confess? I'm confessing the same things over and over again, year after year. What's happening to me? Why am I not being transformed. And then a good priest of mine said, well, maybe the transformation is much more subtle. And maybe the transformation is just you're going week after week after week. You're looking for something grandiose, being knocked to the ground in a blinding light or a voice that comes from the sky that affirms you in your holiness. Maybe it's just you're going week after week. And that's the grace that God gives you. That's the transformation where it would be easy to walk away. It would be easy to give up. Something is happening, even if I don't feel it, even if I can't always see it, even if it isn't, in a sense, felt experientially, something does happen to me. So my presence at Mass, your presence at Mass, something happens to you, even if you leave with the same thoughts with which you came. Of course, everyone always accuses us as being hypocrites because we're nice and holy in church, and as soon as we get on the parking lot, we're fighting with each other, jockeying with each other to get off the parking lot and get to the donut store as quickly as possible. Well, you can't really be a true believer if as soon as you walk out the door, you're being mean to your neighbor. I don't know if I want to say that. Yes, you should be better. Of course, we know that. But the fact that you maybe aren't as good as you ought to be doesn't mean that God isn't doing something to you. 
And the problem with always assuming that because I haven't changed, God isn't doing his work, is to somehow connect the two so completely that God is only successful when I am successful. Well, here's the thing, brothers. This is something we also forget. At the end of time, whenever that's going to be, God is going to take whoever he wants to take to heaven. He's not going to wait for you to get your act together and then come back. I used to think that. God's not going to come back until I get it right. And then I get to go to heaven with everybody else. He could come tomorrow. And he's going to look at me and say, look, I gave you all sorts of opportunities. I love you. I want you to be with me. But you have to want to be with me. I'm not going to force you. And so he's going to do what it is that he's going to do. It's not going to be always predicated on me corresponding, me manifesting that. My failure doesn't say anything all about God's grace and the power of the grace to transform me. So we come to Mass to be transformed. We come to the Holy Sacrifice in order that we can begin to develop the interior life that allows us to be the men that we know we ought to be, to model ourselves after St. Joseph. But you know as well as I, maybe even a little bit better, because of the places where you worship, that if you look at our churches, they're empty and absent of men. They're empty and absent of young men, young single men particularly. And statistically, we know that a great many of our young people simply are indifferent to the faith. Not hostile, they simply just don't care. It doesn't mean anything to them. It's not a reality for them. And more is the pity. And of course, we can no longer appeal to power or authority or kind of, if you will, naked obedience. You must do what you're required to do. No one believes that anymore. No one wants to be governed simply because someone says, do it. So it's, you know, it's as I would always tell my parents when I got older, simply because you told me to do it now doesn't necessarily mean I'm actually going to do it. I'm an adult. I heard what you said. I'm still going to do whatever it is that I want to do, good, bad, or otherwise. There is a book by a Protestant minister called David Murray. He wrote a book, Why Men hate going to church. You've seen this book or come across this book? It's probably about 10, maybe 15 years ago. And of course, he's writing from a Protestant perspective, but experienced the same thing that all religions are experiencing, in that what has happened over time is that religion, in a way, the practice of religion at least, has become something that has forced men not to be present there. Of course, what, under, what kind of undergirds this conversation, given the age in which we live, our, live today as well, makes it even more difficult to have because there are some assumptions about the way men and women pray. Men and women do pray differently. Now, in any other context, I could get in trouble for that statement. If it finds its way on Facebook or Instagram, who knows? I might find myself having to go to priest camp or something like that. But the truth is, brothers, men and women are different from each other. Regardless of what society and culture will say, Regardless of this understanding now that we can mutilate and manipulate ourselves physically to become something that we aren't, something that God did not create. And of course, we can't talk about it publicly. We can't talk about it at places of work. We maybe can't even talk about it among our families because we'll seem outdated, we'll seem indifferent, we'll seem cold, we'll seem uh, overly masculine. And even the term masculinity now has in its uh, fraught with peril. Masculinity, actually it was just defined by the APA, masculinity now is seen in some, by some psychologists as a disease. Masculinity is a disease because society has said to be masculine is to be violent, is to be overbearing, is to be cold-hearted and indifferent. It's a dangerous world. 
where by your very existence, there's something psychologically wrong with you. We chuckle a little bit, but you rub up against it. How do you interact with other people, men and women alike? What do you say? How do you respond? Uh, A word here, a kind word there, a gesture there. I find it even in the rectory with my secretaries, with my staff, uh, where in the past, I grew up with sisters, so it was just always common with sisters and my mom to say, hey, you look pretty today. I can't say that anymore. I don't know what that's going to mean. Is that an aggressive statement? Have I overstepped my bounds? Is there something sexual in that statement? I'm just saying you look pretty today. You look good. Did I not look good before? And there you go. You're off to the races. And I'm done now. Okay. All of that has seeped into the practice of religion. But he believes, and I agree with him, that there is a way of praying that is particular to men as there is to women. And of course, what is particular to us is that we do, in a sense, uh, prize action over, if you will, uh, interiority. Not that we don't have an interior life, but men do things. I think part of this is, in a sense, biologically determined. We're not physically programmed to give birth. We're not, we're not constructed that way. We can't do it. I don't care, again, what society says. I don't envision there will ever be a, a scientific process by which men will actually be able to give birth, despite the whole transgender reality. As soon as I say that, I'm thinking about actually it does happen more often than I actually realize, but for totally different reasons. But that's not who we are. And so to be a woman and to know that your program, your body is built to give birth, to nurture, is going to say something about who you are interiorly. That relationship uh, that exists between mother and child, different than the relationship that exists between father and child. Not one better or worse, but certainly distinct and different. And there is a uniqueness to each. And as St. John Paul himself often wrote, there then is the reciprocity and the complementarity in those relationships. The needing of mother and father in the raising up of children. The feminine and the masculine principle. As St. Paul himself reminds us in his exhortation both to the Hebrews and to the Romans, just in the original creation there was an Adam and an Eve, so there is a new Adam, our Lord, and a new Eve, our Lady. That principle has always been present in God's creation. Male and female, he created them not to war with each other, but to complement each other, to complete each other. And so just as that was at the beginning of the creation, so that was in recreation, and so that is in the life of the church herself now. Men, in a sense, have an appreciation for rules and structure and order. There is strength in manliness, in masculinity, not just, in a sense, physical strength, but in an interior strength where we're asked to endure. Of course, one of my, well, I shouldn't say of course, my, my, one of my favorite images of this is the movie The Godfather. This isn't the, sister, I may ask you to edit this out, so at some point kind of slice it out. Uh, but if you've seen The Godfather, Godfather 1, I've seen all three of them multiple times. That's a wholly different conversation. It was that great scene where the, the Don Corleone is talking to Johnny Fontaine, who is kind of the Frank Sinatra character, and he wants that picture from the Holt studio. He puts his hands in the face. He starts crying. I don't know what to do. And what does the guy do? He slaps him in the face. He's got to act like a man. Okay, well, we're not supposed to beat our kids anymore. We don't beat them in submission. I get it. We don't yell and scream at them on the field. I understand that. But I also appreciate what he was saying. Get your hands out of your face and stop crying. Buck up. Be strong. 
But the strength that we manifest as men in relationship with the living God is not just merely a strength of power. It is actually the strength of St. Joseph, which is silent, but it's also sure and secure and powerful enough to have entrusted to it these greatest of treasures. And so, yes, men are called to be strong. But the strength is St. Joseph. The strength is of Christ. Men who understand first a willingness to sacrifice and lay down their lives. What does Paul say in Ephesians? After we get past the exhortation, wives be submissive to your husbands, of course, that's where everybody stops. Then St. Paul says, men, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. How does Christ love the church? By literally laying down his life for his spouse. And so the wife is required a life of obedience. The husband is required a life of sacrifice a life of selflessness, up to and including the very gift of himself. You, as a man, married or not, must be willing to die for others, and that is both spiritually and physically. If you embrace Christ, if you're emulating St. Joseph, then you must always accept the mystery of the Lord's cross as real and true in your life. This is who we are. This is what we are built for. And to have that absent in church, to have that not be present there, means that not only then those who need our protection, our women and our children, aren't receiving that, but then we are not being taught and formed as to who it is we truly ought to be. When St. John Paul II wrote about St. Joseph, speaking about who he was, he reminds us that St. Joseph learns from our Blessed Mother who it is that he is supposed to be. She, in her humility, allows herself to be an instrument by which grace comes to him in a particular way. She could have told him when it was discovered that she was with child by the Holy Spirit how all of this was going to unfold. But instead, she allowed God to be a part of that. And in that unfolding, she allows St. Joseph to become who it is that he's supposed to be. She could have intervened. She could have harangued him about it, but instead she pulls back. But the beauty of that, that passivity that she makes manifest, allows him then to step forward after he receives the angel Gabriel's exhortation. Because what happens in Scripture? He immediately, it says, takes her into his home. Immediately. There's no waiting. There's no question. There was no doubt. There was no hesitation. This is what I'm supposed to do, and then I did it. But notice, the action was preceded by this conversation. Yes, it happens in a dream, but there's something in him already stirred up and primed and ready to accept what it is that God is asking him to do. The development of manliness, the word virtue itself, vir, man, virtues come from these things that men do, is not just a biological process. To become manly is something that we do develop and foster through deeds, but deeds that are rooted in who we are. There are all sorts of images of who our Lord is. He is the Lamb of God, of course, who takes away the sins of the world. But he also is the Lion of Judah. The Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah are not in competition with each other. But if, as the church has developed, especially in the last 50, 60, 70 years, we've given this overemphasis on the Lamb of God, and we've eschewed the Lion of Judah. It may be hard, as Murrow himself says, for men to find their place in church. Not that we can't relate to the Lamb of God, but we also might more easily relate to the Lamb or the Lion of Judah. 
He quotes and he says that it's not an accident that C.S. Lewis creates his Christ figure Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe as a lion, not a lamb. And of course, when he comes alive, when you've seen the movie or read the book, when he comes alive, the power that he actually brings. And of course, now this is a book that young men, as well as young women, want to read. The feminine principle in the life of the church is never a bad thing. But it also must have present with it uh, the masculine principle as well. And that masculine principle is made manifest by physically having men there. We are there in order to be complementary to the whole reality. We're also there to be transformed by the reality in which we find ourselves. We go to Mass, as the church teaches us, for two reasons. To first adore God, because God is worthy of our adoration. To give God the praise that is properly His. And then in that act of adoration doing the things that God has commanded us to do. We allow him to sanctify us, to make us holy. But we go first to adore God because God is worthy of our adoration. This is important because oftentimes people approach the celebration of the holy sacrifice as something to which I go because I'm going to get something out of it. Or conversely, I don't go because I don't get anything out of it. You can argue you get out what you put in, so on and so forth. But if you reorient yourself and realize you don't go solely because you get something out of it, you go first because you are going to adore God, it changes your whole perspective. Because then I'm there for the primary reason to allow God to do whatever it is he's going to do to me, however he chooses to sanctify me. And so then the presence of us as men at the liturgy allows us to then that, that act of sanctification that God bestows upon us to particularize it in what it is that we are going to do, what it is that he's asking of us, how it is we're going to be transformed by the things that he wants us to do. But again, whatever they are, and I talk about them kind of nebulously because they're going to be different for each of us. What God asks of you, what he asks of me, is not going to be the same thing. But the particulars after we've been transformed by God aren't as important as that first sense of being transformed. We got to be there. We have to show up. We show up to adore him because he's worthy of that. And when we do that, he bestows holiness upon us. Of course, we also learn virtue the virtue of humility, the virtue of obedience, the virtue of docility. We become pliable in the hands of God. So, like our Blessed Mother, we can easily be moved by the promptings of the Holy Spirit. But whereas the feminine principle may be more passive and receptive, once we have received, there is the expectation built in, if you will, to the fabric of who we are as men to then do something with that, to go forth and to make manifest that which has happened to us by our presence at the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And then the more frequently we interact with the things of God, the more frequently we avail ourselves of this beautiful act of adoration that sanctifies us, the stronger we actually become. And our strength is not in ourself. Our strength is in God and in him alone. This is why St. Joseph was successful in cooperating with the grace of God. This is why he was described as a righteous man, because he knew first and foremost that he was God's man. To quote St. Thomas More, I am God's servant first and last. And then, doing the other things that men might ask me to do. And so then our success or our failures aren't predicated by what the world says about us. Rather, our successes 
are celebrated by God. Our failures are forgiven by God. And all of that happens because we are involved in God's strength. This is how the world will be transformed. We also know, statistically, that men who practice their faith, the men who are participant in church, is because they saw that example in their fathers and other men in their lives. If you can't do it for yourself, do it for your sons. Do it for men that you are mentoring. Do it for friends if you can't do it for yourself. Because you set an example that does indeed transform. It's never lost on me, and it's become even more present now that I'm a pastor again. That my life really isn't my own. And the lion's share of things that I do, I don't do for me or solely because I'm required to do them by virtue of the fact that I'm priest and pastor. I do them because there are people who are relying upon me. People whose very souls have been entrusted into my hand. And if I fail because of my laziness or my lethargy or my indifference, not only then am I lost, I'm losing other people as well. Well, I might be willing to be lost but I'm not willing to lose others. And the same should be true for all of us. And again, it doesn't have to be large. It doesn't have to be a great many. It may just be one person who's been given to your care. And that be sufficient and enough. But you have to be present at Holy Mass. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, of course, Monsignor, we are. That's why we're here. We need to be preaching to the choir. But I'm preaching to the choir because then you guys need to go and sing this verse to other people who actually aren't here. Because if everyone believed this, the church would be packed right now. And our churches on Sunday would be packed with men and women alike. So, the desire that we have is to be like St. Joseph in the things that we do, but also in the manner of who we are. And our presence at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is that best place to form us into the interiority that we need in order that it might express itself externally. As we prepare ourselves for the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, let's ask the practical question. Am I always prepared when I come to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass? Do I arrive early enough to enter more deeply into the experience? Am I a man of gratitude and thanksgiving as I enter into the greatest act of thanksgiving? And then, when I leave the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, and the God who is inside of me because I have received Him, Do I go forth and live that in my daily life? These are not rhetorical questions, things you need to pray about. Because if the answer to any of those, or one of those, or all of those is no, or there's more I can do, this is also the place where I ask God what needs to change in order that that sanctification that he bestows upon me in my acts of adoration truly can transform me into the man that God wants me to be. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.